So we want to be happy, right? We seek after happiness. It's in the uh, founding uh, father's documents of this country, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So we pursue happiness, and we want it, but happiness eludes us, does it not? In fact, if, if there's somebody here who really does feel entirely happy, you're content, and you're in a state of bliss, you can leave right now, because this sermon is not for you. But for the rest of us, I think I can say confidently uh, that we lack this happiness that we seek. We seek after happiness, and it eludes us. You know, to be a Christian, I think that you have to accept the following as true. That there are many things that we want, that we believe will make us happy, but they have not made us happy. They, they do not make us happy, and they will not do the job. You have to kind of accept that as something about ourselves to be a Christian, I think. that There are things that you want that you think are going to make you happy, but they can't make you happy. They don't make you happy. Well, we have help this morning um, from a few chapters in the book of Exodus, and they describe the most spectacular miracle, or miracles, I could say a set of miracles, that the world probably ever witnessed uh, of God's power. God showed his power in delivering his people out of Egypt in what we call the Exodus, and those, those events, I, don't re- I can't really think of a time when God did something that was more powerful, that was more spectacular in showing as far as the number of people who saw this exhibition of power ever in history, or maybe the Genesis flood, I don't know. But th- th- I, don't th- I can't think of besides that any- anything that was more spectacular in the show of power And it's one of the reasons we're reading here, to see God's power, to become acquainted with God's power. And this this was it, this amazing show of power. And and the first thing I want to say about it, all these things that, that led the children of Israel out of Egypt through the desert and into the promised land, all this complex of events, they really happened. And, you know, uh, you might have heard or maybe you've read or maybe even you took a class and it was conveyed to you, it's maybe in the back of your mind, that there is no external evidence for the events of the Exodus as described in, in the Bible in Exodus 7 through 11. You might have heard that or it might be in the back of your mind that there is no archaeological evidence or no literary evidence uh, for the Exodus. Now, if you have, let me just say this to you. That is patently false. Okay? That is not true. There is, in fact, striking external evidence, for those of you who are interested in this kind of thing, for these events that are described here to actually, outside of the Bible, there's testimony about these things from archaeology and literary sources. Uh, And probably the best presentation of this that you would get today, uh, if you're interested in this kind of thing, you want to see how uh, archaeology confirms the things that are written in the scriptures, uh, would be uh, in the documentaries of Tim Mahoney and the documentary series that he's doing called Patterns of Evidence. 
It's probably the most accessible, most best presentation. It's, it's beautifully filmed. And it's excellently done. He has a way, Timothy Mahoney, of actually taking concepts that can be kind of complex archaeologically and breaking them down for us to understand. Patterns of evidence. He's done two films now. The first one is called The Moses Controversy, about whether Moses could have even written uh, the account of the Exodus. The second one's just called The Exodus. Uh, highly recommended, if you're interested in this, laying out of this evidence. And you'll find this evidence in the Middle Kingdom of uh, ancient Egypt. The, the ancient Egypt's divided into kingdoms, a Middle Kingdom, where most, most archaeologists, most scholars these days are not looking for the Exodus. Uh, they're looking for it in a more recent period. But this, this uh, lays out the evidence in the Middle Kingdom which uh, these days is dated to about the 16th century B.C. And another one, actually, uh, that's really good is a book by Joel Richardson, just came out, called uh, Mount Sinai in Arabia. Joel Richardson, Mount Sinai in Arabia. And I would say that was laying forth for us uh, more preliminary evidence of archaeological finds that are happening on the Sinai side. So these are things that you, you have, you know, they've made such an effect on the world. There is uh, things we can find out about them as well from outside the Bible. Uh, we're going to, this morning, be looking at specifically the plagues that were visited on Egypt during this Exodus event. And these are incredible shows of God's power, uh, unprecedented really, and nothing that's been seen uh, since. Uh, and these plagues, uh, you might remember kind of the story of these various plagues, about 10 of them that were visited on Egypt. They were not natural events that occurred in the life of Egypt. Uh, these days, it's, it's popular among scholars to say, oh, these were just natural events that happened, and they were later exaggerated to be acts of God. You know, the, the waters got, you know, there was some kind of storm and it churned up the sediment in the Nile. So it just looked like it was blood. It was red, you know, and that drove the frogs out of the Nile and they came up into Egypt and then they died. And because they died, you know, insects festered in the flesh and the carcasses of the frogs and you had the insects plague. So there's this, uh, there's this narrative that all of these were kind of natural events, one upon the other, these plagues. These were not uh, natural events. One of the ways you can tell that is, well, um, I was talking about this evidence. There was an Egyptian sage who wrote an account for us that survived. Uh, as you might expect, this is tremendously embarrassing to the establishment of Egypt. So you, you're not going to find like accounts of this uh, in the Egyptian annals. But there was a scribe. His name was Ipur. And Ipur wrote this account. It's called The Admonitions of an Egyptian Sage. And it dates, again, to the Middle Kingdom. Um, the the papyrus, papyrus text that we have is actually from later, but everybody agrees it dates back to a text from the Middle Kingdom. And he talks about what's going on in Egypt, and he's basically um, hammering on the Egyptian leadership for making this happen, for, for being responsible for this happening. Uh, and I would just like to, you know, read you a few of the phrases that Ipuwer uses in this account, because there's, it's very hard to read his account and not think about the events that are described in Exodus 7 through 11. 
This is the kind of things that he says in his account. And he's giving this as a warning. Some people say, oh, well, this is maybe as a prophecy that he wasn't witnessing it. But that's not the way it reads. It reads as if he's witnessing these things and he's giving a warning uh, to the leadership of the, of the Egyptians. This is what he says, quote, <clears throat> the river is blood, unquote. Quote, everywhere barley has perished, unquote. Quote, pestilence is throughout the land, unquote. And this is very interesting. At one point he says, gold, lapis lazuli, silver are strung on the necks of maidservants. Unquote. Very interesting. And he even says this. Let this sink in. This is, this is someone from the Middle Kingdom talking, saying, he who buries his brother is everywhere. Unquote. So it's a tremendous demonstration of God's power that occurred in Egypt that we're getting the record of here in Exodus. And it wasn't just a show of God's power. It was a show of God's power that said, there is no defense against this power. There is nobody who can stand up and say, oh, you've gone a little too far, Yahweh. You can't go further. No, this is, this is a power against which there is no defense. But in this show of power, something very important is going on that can help us. Let's, uh, let's stand, if you would, as you can, uh, as we read this. What, what these are are selections from Exodus chapter 7 through 11. Uh, we did a good job kind of putting in excerpts in the bulletin. We're not going to read all the chapters. It's too long for us to read. But these are excerpts, and I think I'll even kind of take excerpts from these excerpts <laughs> as we read through um, to, to go through this. But uh, as we join our story, um, this is uh, Pharaoh preventing the children of Israel, the Israelites, from leaving Egypt. And Moses and Aaron keep coming and saying to them, help, you know, let the children of Egypt go, let the children of Israel go to worship God in the wilderness. God says this. They keep saying no. This is what ensues. So let us begin in chapter 7, and I think I'll begin down in verse 19. Uh, number 1. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the rivers, their canals and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in the vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile. And all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died and the Nile stank so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. And in Exodus 8, it goes on. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals, and over the pools, and make frogs come up out of up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. And uh, he goes on. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth, so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth. 
And there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. And Exodus 8 goes on in verse 20. And then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water. And say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. Or else, if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses and the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall happen. And the Lord did so. There came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses throughout all the land of Egypt. The land was ruined by swarms of flies. And Exodus 9. And the Lord set a time saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. And the next day the Lord did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead. But the, Pharaoh, the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln, and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt, and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from the kiln, stood before Pharaoh, and Moses threw it in the air. It became boils breaking out in sores on man and beast. And then in verse 23, it goes on. And then Moses struck out his staff toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire ran down to the earth. The Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail, such as never had been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. It struck down everything except in Goshen. Exodus 10, verse 13, Moses stretched out his hand over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind on all the land that day and all that night. When it was morning, the east wind had brought the locusts. The locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt. Such a dense swarm of locusts as had never been before, nor ever will be again. They covered the face of the whole land so that the land was darkened. And they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field through all the land of Egypt. And Exodus go on, the, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not let the people of Israel go. The Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven that there may be darkness over the land, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt. Three days they did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. And Exodus 11.1, 1, Then the Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more will I bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. And this is a word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. Please uh, be seated. Okay. Again, as I said, spectacular show of power, spectacular events um, that are being recorded here. And something is going on. It's very important that you have to see. In order to understand this, uh, these passages this morning, we have to understand that God is not just arbitrarily doing things to show his power. What he is doing is pronouncing judgment and mocking the gods of Egypt. He is taking the principal gods and showing that these gods have no power compared to him. They really can't deliver what the Egyptians want them to deliver in their lives. That's what he's doing. And to to understand this, you have to understand how many gods (laughs) Egypt has. Egypt had so many gods. There was God for every aspect of, of life that you might really want. That You might say, I want this. Uh, above all other things. There was a God for that. Um, Egypt was, I would say, it's a God factory. Okay? It just manufactured gods. And if you doubt this, uh, what you want to do is go to the British Museum in London. Next time you're in London, uh, go to the British Museum and be sure to visit their Egyptian collection. You will go in there and you will see case after case after case after case of Egyptian gods. I mean, maybe other, maybe this is true of most pagan cultures, but we, we certainly know it for Egypt because we have so much from Egypt. And you can see this is a part of their lives. This is part of their daily, daily lives. It was how they functioned. And God was bringing them to naught. He was mocking them. And that's what he says, basically, he's doing, essentially, uh, in Exodus 12, And Numbers 33, also, and they're talking about the plagues and what he was doing in the plagues. This is what he says. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. That's what he was doing here in these plagues. That's the judgment that was coming. And, uh, you know, you can look at specific gods here in regard to these plagues, which we will do. And I'm, I'm indebted this morning in my treatment of this to John Currid uh, and the you know, great book that he wrote, Ancient Egypt and the Old Testament, because he actually shows and links how these, plague, how these plagues can be linked um, to different gods. Uh, and it's, it's important to understand this is what's going on in the passage because God is showing his power not just before the Egyptians, but before the Israelites. Please, please remember here that these people have lived here for hundreds of years. And God is now bringing them out. But they can't bring these gods with them. Or it will be all for naught. And so God is trying to mock the Egyptian gods, not just for the Egyptians, but for the Israelites. So that the Israelites come to see that these gods are nothing. And that's very important because otherwise all the shows of power that he's about to do will mean nothing to them. It will do them no good. If they, if they leave Egypt and they take with them in their hearts the belief that these gods can make them happy. These gods that they've been living among for, for, for hundreds of years. It's hard. God had to break them of this habit. And he had to do it by showing these gods were a joke. 
and mocking them. And so that's what he's doing here. Not, for the, not only for the Egyptians, but for the Israelites as well. And if you feel a sermon coming on here, um, that's because there is. That's, <laughs> that's going to be the point of my sermon, that the same is true for us. But let's take a look at these gods. Very interesting. See, let's see how we fare with these Egyptian gods in this contest between Yahweh and the gods of Egypt. Let's just take a look at them. Okay? Let's start and just go through the plagues. First one, number one, was turning the Nile into blood. Okay, what's going on here is an affront to Happy. Happy was the god of fertility or goddess. I'm not sure which to say because Happy is represented as a bearded man who has big breasts and a, and a pregnant tummy. Okay, now you might think it very strange that anyone would exalt such a creature. Um, or maybe you wouldn't these days um, think that this uh, might be something to esteem. But this was happy, and uh, this, is, this is what they've worshipped for fertility. It's a god, goddess of fertility. Um, and it's because they wanted to have children. And so happy was worshipped. Then number two, the frogs came out. What was going on there was a mocking of Hekhet. Hekhet was the wife of Canum. Canum was the god who, who formed humanity on a potter's wheel. In, in Egyptian uh, cosmology, you had a potter's wheel, and Canum formed humanity on this potter's wheel with this sort of substance. But it was the wife of that god, Hekhet, who breathed life into humanity. So this is a goddess who can breathe life into you and your family. And um, she also kind of took care of the crocodiles in the Nile by controlling the number of frogs that were in the Nile and so taking care of the crocodiles. So she is actually represented as a woman, Hekhet, with a frog's head, okay? When you see a woman with a frog's head, that's Hekhet. And you say, well, why would they do this? Why would they worship these gods? Well, ask yourself how important your children are to you. Ask yourself if it's got to be children, if you have got to have children. You know, it's wonderful. We can pray. I really appreciate Drew's prayers, even for those of us here today who aren't mothers. You know, but you think about it. If children is something you have got to have, and it becomes larger in your affections than Yahweh, uh, then this God, I would suggest to you, is not entirely dead. Hekhet is not entirely dead among us. Or if, you, if your children are your life and you can't bear to think of your children in any situation in which they have trouble, if your children cannot experience pain and you will do anything, you will pay anything so that they will not be in pain, I would just ask the question if Hekhet has really passed from the scene. Number three, number four, Flying insects. Um, who is being mocked here? Kepler. Kepler, the self-generated god of resurrection, uh, often seen as a flying beetle. You have this flying beetle. You're looking at Kepler. And Kepler was this god that kind of gave you generation from inside yourself. It's kind of self-generation. Um, renewal. Uh, so if you, uh, and, and why did the Egyptians worship him? Because he gave eternal youth. You could be eternally young. 
If it's important to you to look a certain way, and that you will just pursue no matter what with all your resources, um, that's why you might go to Kepler. Then plague number five, the domesticated animal pestilence. Uh, it's very clear what's going on here because in the, in the country of Egypt, the bull cults flourished. There were so many bull cults because this was a, a, an exaltation of sex, really. The bull was the great inseminator. And so you had all kinds of gods like this. So you had the likes of Apis and Bucus and Isis, actually, the queen of the gods. She had these horns uh, that would come out. And especially, you had Hathor. Hathor was, again, this uh, kind of woman who had a bovine head, uh, a goddess. And you say, what's going on there? Well, friends, sex was important to them. <laughs> now, I don't know if you can relate, <laughs> but if sex is something you have got to have, and sexual, sexual arousal is something you must have and you will do anything, even go against what you know God wants you to do, or break a marriage covenant, then I would, I would suggest to you that perhaps Hathor has not completely passed. Um, Hathor was also, by the way, the, the goddess of celebration and, and, and dancing and playing, if I could put it this way. She was the goddess of rising up to play. Number six, boils, which might have been smallpox, could have been. And that uh, should have been under the control of Sekhmet. Sekhmet was the, you know, she had this lion head and she was the god of health, but also plagues. Uh, could be one or the other. And, uh, god, and Yahweh here was showing that Sekhmet had no power at all. But he did. And you'd say, well, why was, was Sekhmet worship? Well, because people valued health. That was something they wanted. By the way, you know, when we're talking about gods and goddesses like this, we're not talking about bad things that people want. It's a good thing to want children. It's a good thing to want health. You know? But when it becomes that thing which you think will make you happy above Yahweh, above God, that's when it becomes an idol. So you don't have to be into devil worship or you know, witchcraft to be an idolater. Although, you know, that's the same kind of thing. That's why idolatry is, or witchcraft is like idolatry. Because it's you taking, saying, I, I need something else for my security, for my power, for my happiness, instead of God. So that's what they were doing. And if you think that that's not, um, if you can't relate to that, I would just ask you to pay attention to the political speeches in this country and what they depend on. This is how politicians get elected, actually, is by depending on this God of health um, and promising that they can keep you healthy. Then number seven, there is hail upon Egypt. And now we're moving into the heavenly deities. There was Newt who personified the sky. There was Shu who held up the sky. There was Tefnut, the goddess of moisture. Um, and, you know, you can relate different things to these about, uh, that, you, that you think might, might be parallels. I'll tell you what uh, makes me think of is, uh, you know, wanting certainty uh, from science. 
And again, a good thing, science is a very good thing. But if you feel like, I cannot believe in something, I can't trust it, I can't have security unless I have a scientific explanation, um, then I suggest there might be an elevation here of some good part of creation that God did not intend to be so elevated. And then eight, come the locusts. Um, you know, locusts were a nasty problem. In, in Egypt, recurring problem. Nothing like this. This was, this was just uh, never, as the text said, never seen before, um, this amount of damage from locusts. But locusts were an annoyance that periodically happened. And so people would worship Senehem, and Senehem would give deliverance from these annoyances, these troubles, you know, and protect against pest ravages. Um, and so if you have a desire and say, for me to be happy, I have to be free from problems. And I will arrange my life so that I am not, I am not subject to any annoyances, any problems. Then I would say you, you might want to check out Senehem. Uh, if you feel like you need that to be happy. And you might even cut off relations with people so that you say, I have no negative energy uh, in my life. Um, Senehem is alive and well. And then nine, darkness. Darkness, you heard that, that could be felt. And why was that was, we're getting to the culmination of, of the mockery of Egyptian gods. Because in the Egyptian mind, you know, the earth was a plate. And, and Ra, Ra, the great Ra, the, the uh, sort of chief deity, would rise in the morning and go across the heavens and bring blessing, and there would be fruitfulness, there would be plenty, and then Ra would go underneath the plate, and then there would be darkness. So you have these cycles of blessing and darkness. Of, and, uh, you know, I don't know what you might relate it to, but to me it just sounds like a bull market and then a bear market, <laughs> a bull market and a bear market, and that's where you're putting your security in. Um, the 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 fluctuations and the cycles of the stock market. So there, there are these gods that were obviously being de more than dethroned. They're being decimated just like the land of Egypt. And maybe you were hit by one of these as we were go, go through them. Maybe you have a different God in whom you trust for your happiness. But friends, the message here from these, these passages is these gods need to be mocked. They, not, they don't mean to be just tolerated and maybe kept at arm's distance in your life. So maybe, maybe sometime they might come back in a little. They need to be mocked in your life to be left behind. I would suggest to you that the world hasn't really changed that much. 3,000 years. You know, a lot has changed, but a lot hasn't. And that's why we're sitting here today not happy. Feeling like happiness eludes us. Why? Because we are just like Egypt. We, our hearts are God factories. <laughs> because if there's one thing we're good at, we are so adept at this, at finding things to treasure above God himself. That is what we are adept at, finding things to love above, above God himself. And again, these gods are, are not necessarily bad things. They're good things sometimes in our lives. It's good, to, it's good to have children. It's good to have sex. You know, these are good things. And yet, we elevate them above the one who's giving them to us. And if you aren't convicted yet, if you're sitting here and, man, I don't, I don't know what they're talking about. If, okay, let me give you a way to do it. If you want to find out 
What your gods are, I have an easy way to find out. It's foolproof, actually. Are you curious? I'll tell you. You go to the person who is closest to you, the person who knows you best, whoever that would be, and ask him, what does he think you feel like you need to be really happy? What does he think that you need? What does she think that you really need to be happy? And the reason I say the person, ask the person who's closest to you. You have to do it now, okay? Um, Maybe sometime later. The reason I say that is because she probably has been watching your life closely enough to be, be able to see what you're like when you do not have these things. She knows what it's like when these things might, you might not have these things uh, or these things might be withdrawn from you. What is it, how is it that you respond to the, uh, to the people around you in that situation? How do you treat people around you when you are not getting that thing? Or does, those, does that thing lead you into ac- actions that God says don't do? Lead you into sin? And it's just these people in our lives are the ones who have experience with us, who are able to look at our lives and have the best shot at telling us, you know, you do really feel, it seems to me you feel like you need this to be happy. There's your gods. There they are. In fact, some of you wonder why God withholds some of these good things in your lives. And he does it in order to allow us to diagnose our hearts so that we could ask our hearts and get the answer, what are my gods? But we must answer that question because God God can do amazing things. He does do amazing things in your life. But they won't do you any good if you bring these idols along with you out of Egypt. If these idols remain intact, if they remain undefeated, if they remain unbroken, if they remain unmocked. You know, because the point is, these, these gods... They will be mocked in our lives. They will be mocked by the things that happen in our lives. The question is, can can we be the ones mocking them along with Yahweh? Because if there are gods in your life, and and if he cares about you especially, these gods will be mocked. Their power will be shown to be a joke. Will we be there mocking with him? Or not? And I'm, I'm asking this question of us because the question came up with the Israelites. It turns out that some of them did leave Egypt under the extreme power of God, under the mighty acts of God. They were brought out of Egypt, but it turns out that some of them seemed to have not mocked the gods with Yahweh. Some of them seemed to have brought these gods with them. How do I know that? Because we go out into the wilderness and out in the desert. What do we find? Who shows up again? Hathor (laughs) in this golden calf that is suddenly with them. And, you know, you can go out there around Arabia and find these petroglyphs of the worship of Hathor. And the way it's expressed is, you know, a person drinking from a, a 
cow's udder. It's, uh, I know it's disgusting, but that was part of Hathor. That's part of the routine of Hathor. Um, and these were the same things that you had back in Egypt. So what are we, what are we finding? Is that some, some of the Israelites, they brought Hathor with them. And you get to the end of the Exodus. Remember, I took you to Deuteronomy before, so where they were going to the end of the Exodus. But you read in the covenant renewal ceremony that became the book of Deuteronomy in Deuteronomy 4. Moses is, is there giving them instruction. He's very sharp with them in giving them a warning, saying, if you make these idols and you bring them into the land, doesn't matter how much how much I've delivered you, doesn't how much I drive out your enemies, doesn't matter how much fruitfulness I give you in the land, it will do you no good. And you will lose the land. If you bring Hathor and the rest of these idols into this land, you will lose the land. So unfortunately, it's the, it was the fact with them that even with all that God had done, still... Some did not allow these gods to be mocked in their lives. And so it is with us. It is the same with us. Listen, you want to know where happiness is? Here, I'll give it to you. I'll give you the secret of life right here. You want to, you want to, you want to have happiness? You want to be happy? Here it is. Here it is. Happiness is what sneaks up on you as you are treasuring God. That's it. Happiness is not something that we're led to think. We pursue it, we pursue it, we find it. No. Happiness is what sneaks up on you as you are loving God, as you are treasuring God, as you're, as you're following him and doing the things that he says. And then, you know, you wake up in the morning, it's like, whoa, wait a second, well, I'm happy. How did that happen? <laughs> it happened as you were treasuring God. Well, there is one plague more. You know, it's kind of like a song. Yet one plague more, <laughs> Pharaoh. <laughs> Yet one plague more. And we're going to end there with chapter 11, verse 1. One plague more. And this was the death of the Egyptian firstborn. And you know, the miracle here is that after all these plagues, the real miracle is not that the firstborn of the Egyptians died. It's that the firstborn of the Israelites lived. It's that those who deserved to die were passed over. That when death came, as death always comes, it passed over them. How? Well, we know how, by the blood of the covenant that was spilt for them and then put on their doorposts, shed before them. And that was a lesson for them. That night, the Israelites were to learn a lesson. And this was a lesson. God loved them. And he loved them so that this final plague passed over them. He was the one to bring life to them. They were seeking happiness in these Egyptian gods. They were all mocked. And then God is saying, I'm the one who brings you life. I am the one to treasure. And when you treasure me, you will know happiness. If you understand this miracle, 
you can mock your gods. Even those ones that you feel like they just possess you. You have such a desire. You've got to have this no matter what. Those gods. You know, when you don't get these things, it's appropriate to be sad. We're talking about good things here. And when you don't have them in your life, it's good to be sad. But are you devastated? Are you led into places you shouldn't be when you do not receive them? And so this miracle that he was doing for them was, was going to instill a desire in them that would overwhelm all the other desires so they could mock those other gods in their lives and leave them behind. As the psalmist put it, it was not by their sword that they won the land, nor did their army bring them victory. It was your right hand, your arm, and the light of your face. For you loved them. Well, dear friends, Christ is our Passover miracle. Christ now, the treasure of the ages, is held out to us. It's brighter than gold. You can't even see. And he can take your life and make it into something it's never been before. Christ is your fertility. Christ is your family. Christ is your health. Christ is your pleasure. Christ is your wealth. Christ is your youth. Christ is your choice. Christ is your certainty. Christ is your bliss. When you have him, you have that which will make you happy. And he is the one who makes all these other gods a joke. They're a joke. Why hold yourself back to him? And he wants this for you so that the power of God acting in your life can actually mean something for you. So don't hold yourself back from him. Give him, give you, give yourself to him this morning as we come to this table. Amen. Amen. Will you please stand with me?